and I have to figure out which buttons I turn on. So we have completely new equipment now. Is that better? Yeah, amazing when you have the right buttons. Right. So uh, they're going to be trying to figure things out, and they're all up there uh, having their technological kicks this morning with all the new toys they have. So uh, let me see one announcement that I want to um, emphasize again, the Spring Bible Conference with Arnold Prutenbaum. I make it a point that I try to bring in speakers that are the cream of the crop nationally, and it's been my privilege because of my career at Dallas Seminary and my involvement in a couple of different study groups like the pre-trib rapture study group to be acquainted with and to have gotten to know over the years some of the uh, premier thinkers in conservative theology. You are all familiar with Charlie Clough, of course, and Tommy Ice has been here. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum is in that same category. He is um, a phenomenal individual in what he knows, his breadth and scope of uh, the Old Testament, as well as his background in Judaism, and so he is going to bring um, an interesting perspective to the life of Christ. So you need to be here early. They, he, he is the head of Ariel Ministries, which is a ministry related to um, Jewish missions, and they have quite an extensive mailing list, and he's been. they sent out an announcement that he would be here, and I've been getting calls all week from people in uh, this part of the country who are planning to come at least one, for at least one session. So there will be, um, I think we're going to have a full house. I've also invited North Stonington to come over. So a lot of uh, those folks will be here at least on Friday night and maybe some on Saturday night, although I understand they have a conflict there. But they're going to try to get a lot of their folks over here. So get here a little early, make room for the visitors. When we have our break, Arnold's going to take two hours every night. When we have that break, uh, between the two sessions, that's designed primarily to give people a chance to go to the restroom if they need to and to just get up and stretch their legs. It's not really a fellowship break, although there will be coffee and water available. Uh, don't take advantage of that and disappear for five or ten minutes because the two-hour session starting at 7.30, if people get lost during the break, they're going to be here till 10 or 10.30. So don't, uh, don't, don't do that. And use it as an opportunity to invite your friends, and especially if you have any uh, Jewish friends, whether they're believers or unbelievers, they might find this particularly uh, interesting. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can make sure that uh, you are in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready to study the Word with me this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege as believer priests to worship freely in this nation. We continue to pray for the leaders of this nation, for our president, for members of Congress, for our military leaders, and for the military men on the ground in Afghanistan and in other parts of the world who are carrying out this war against terrorism. We understand the principle that freedom is won and secured and maintained through military victory and that we pray that you would continue to give us leaders who understand that principle and who are willing to use the military to secure our freedoms and to continue to maintain them. Father, we thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. That is just part of all that we have because of our position in Christ. And as we continue our study understand to understand the doctrine of positional truth and the baptism By means of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you will help us to understand these things and see how they are foundational to every problem-solving technique, every spiritual skill that is in the Scriptures and that is on the basis of all that we have in Christ, that we are able to face and surmount any adversity, difficulty, or problem we face in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, a couple of weeks, well, it really wasn't a couple of weeks ago because of my extended absence, but because of uh, a couple of lessons ago, we began our study of Paul's prayer of thanksgiving at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. And that uh, introduces us to the entire doctrine of gratitude. But before we can really get into understanding the doctrine of gratitude and how we pray prayers of thanksgiving, we have to understand the foundation that Paul lays in this opening introduction, and that has to do with the doctrine of positional truth. Now, we began to look at this last week in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4, where Paul says, I thank God, my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. And we began our exegesis of that last time. And then this week, I want to do a brief comparison, epistle to epistle, with Paul's opening prayers of thanksgiving. Now, this is important because when Paul writes almost all of his epistles, he says something about that about being thankful. And it's uh, instructive to see what he is thankful for. When he comes to Romans, excuse me, Romans 1, 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. So he is thankful for the Roman believers and the believers in the church. Specifically, he says, because your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. So Paul thanked God because of the worldwide reputation of their faith and their doctrine. 
In Ephesians, Paul gives thanks for their faith in the Lord Jesus and their unconditional or impersonal love for all believers in Ephesians 1.15, where he states, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. So it's not just their salvation, but also their application of doctrine and their advance because of their unconditional and impersonal love for all believers. When Paul addresses the Philippians, he's filled with joy because of their response and their partnership in the gospel. Philippians 1, 3 through 5, we read, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. When Paul writes the Colossians, he gives thanks for their faith in Christ Jesus and for their love for all the saints. The hope that is laid up for them in heaven, that is their confident expectation, indicating that they have advanced to spiritual adolescence. They understand their eternal destiny, and that is affecting the way they are living. He is also thankful for the production from doctrine in their lives. He writes, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Then when Paul writes the Thessalonian believers, he is thankful to them because of their unceasing application of doctrine, their labor of love. That means they are working at application. It's not just... Uh, sitting back and having an academic trip learning doctrine, and because they have a confident expectation of Christ's return, and also because they accepted the message of the apostles not as their opinion, but as the Word of God. They recognized that this was not just something that Paul thought up and that Paul and Timothy and Silas were bringing to them, but it was the very Word of God itself. He writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says again, And for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you. And then in Second Thessalonians, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith, that is your doctrine, is greatly enlarged. They are continuing to advance in their understanding of the word. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Notice in several of these, he is thankful because of their love for one another. That was Jesus' statement in John thirteen thirty four that the new commandment was to love one another, and that is an advanced spiritual skill. So these believers are advancing. Notice he doesn't mention anything about that when he uh, introduces the Corinthian epistle. And then again in Second Thessalonians two thirteen, he writes, "But we should also give, uh, we should always give thanks to God for you." Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And there he says something similar to what he says in 1 Corinthians, and that is a focus on the positional reality. And that is what we must understand if we are ever going to have or develop true grace orientation and gratitude 
toward God. It begins with an understanding of all that we have in Christ and all that God has given us. Now, it's also instructive to notice that in 2 Corinthians and in Galatians, there is no mention of Paul's thanksgiving. He is angry. Now, some people think that pastors shouldn't get angry, but that's not biblical. Uh, Pastors should get, there is a place for pastors to get angry and to get tough on a congregation, and Paul demonstrates that several times in his epistles, especially uh, 2 Corinthians and Galatians, where he's having to deal with carnal Christians and Christians who are just stubbornly holding on to human viewpoint and refusing to uh, apply doctrine. The emphasis in his Thanksgiving prayer is all Thanksgiving prayers is always based on what God has provided and what God is going to do in the life of the believer. It is not something that's focused on the circumstances. So when we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 that in everything we are to give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, the starting point of real gratitude, the starting point of being able to give thanks, is to focus not on the circumstances, but on what God has provided for us, the resources that we have in Jesus Christ. So the starting point for gratitude is always the grace of God. So last time we saw that in 1 Thessalonians, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you, aorist tense, was given in the past, that is at the point of their salvation, in Christ Jesus. That grace of God gave everything to us at the instant of salvation. See, unfortunately, especially in American Christianity, There developed in the middle of the 19th century a movement called holiness theology, which came out of of, uh, Methodism or Wesleyan theology. And it was the idea that you didn't get it all at the cross, that you needed to have some second work of grace after salvation. Now, that's manifested in different different ways in some different uh, contexts, but in the, the most extreme form, which is in Pentecostalism, and the charismatic movement, that second work of grace is supposedly the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which comes after salvation and is signified by speaking in tongues. But in milder forms, it was expressed through what was called the victorious life theology, the Keswick movement, the idea that you have to dedicate your life or rededicate your life, that there is, and it, gave, it came out of the, the whole matrix of revivalistic theology that somehow before you get everything you need to live the spiritual life, you have to go through some sort of uh, second experience where you trust God and then you're elevated to some higher plane of spirituality. And you see that in a lot of Uh, older Christian books like The Secret to the Higher Life or The Victorious Christian Life. You see it manifested in a lot of hymns that came out of that period, but that is not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is what Paul emphasizes here in verse 4, and that is the grace of God that was given, aorist tense, that means it happened in the past, and it was given in Christ Jesus. It comes with our identification with Christ, which is what we call the doctrine of positional truth. Now, in case you weren't here last week, we're going to do a brief review of the first eight points. And if you weren't here, don't try to take it down because I'm going to go too fast for you. Definition. 
the positional truth is defined as the uniting of the believer with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, which is the basis for our spiritual life. It is the uniting of the believer with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which is the basis for the spiritual life. Point number two was the mechanics. We have the illustration, and I know this diagram is going to get old for some of you because you've seen it so much, but this is going to lock it into your thinking. At the instant of salvation, when you follow the mandate of Acts 16.31 to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, at that instant we are placed in Christ. It is in, the Greek preposition in, E-N, plus the dative of sphere. We are located, it's a locative also, so same concept, locative or sphere. We are located in Christ, and this is affected by the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. This is point number two. The mechanics of how spiritual truth, or positional truth is accomplished is the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, whereby Christ uses the Holy Spirit to affect our union with Christ. Now, if that's a little fuzzy to some of you, we'll come back and look at that in detail uh, as we close this morning. Passages of 1 Corinthians 12:13 and Ephesians 4:5. Third point was that positional truth guarantees the believer's eternal security in Romans 8:38 and 39. Fourth point, positional truth belongs to every category of believer, reversionists, mature believers, immature believers, or carnal believers. It doesn't matter what your status is right now. If you have put your faith alone in Christ alone, you're identified with Christ, and that is yours, and it can never be lost. The fifth point was that positional truth qualifies the believer to live with God forever because of our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Part of that package, we receive, with that package, we receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness, and that is what qualifies us to live with God forever. Sixth point, positional truth creates a new creature in Christ. At that instant, we are uh, changed. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Seventh point, positional truth is the basis for spiritual growth, the production of divine good as a result of spiritual growth, and a pattern of life compatible with royalty. Every single believer is made a, is adopted into the royal family of God at the instant of salvation so that we become spiritual aristocracy as members of the church. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And then the last point we covered last time was that positional truth is the basis for grace blessing. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Because we are in Christ, we receive blessing. It is not because of who we are, what we have done. It's not because of our obedience to Scripture. See, that's the problem that almost every denomination and almost every church gets into, is that we are blessed because of something we do. If you're involved in... Uh, prayer, then God will bless you. If you read your Bible every day, then God will bless you. If you witness to so many people every week, then God will bless you. But that is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that blessing comes, all blessing comes, because of who Christ is and because of the imputation of perfect righteousness, not because of anything that we have done.
This brings us to where we stopped last time, point number nine, what each member of the Trinity has done for us in positional truth. What each member of the Trinity has done for us in position, positional truth. This explains to us, to some degree, how we are enriched in Christ and how each member of the Trinity is involved in the process of positional truth. So first of all, we'll look at the role of God the Father. The role of God the Father, and this can be seen, or the points I'm going to bring out here, this is not a complete study of this by any means, but just to give you a sense of how each member of the Trinity is involved, this is all covered, or mostly covered, in Romans 8, 29, and 30. Romans 8, 29, and 30, which reads, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, these operations are all functions of the role of God the Father. First of all, he foreknew us. Now, this is not some sort of fatalism. Fatalism is a human viewpoint concept that says that all things are going to happen the way they do. It doesn't matter what we say, what we do. Our volition is irrelevant. God's plan is broad enough to include the free operation of his creatures. While it is true that God controls human history and that God oversees the operation and results of all the details of human history, God has built into the warp and woof of human history enough flexibility to handle the chaos that comes from human free will decisions. Let me give you just a back up a little bit and help you with, a, with an, a, an analogy from creation. When God created all of the creatures in Genesis chapter 1, he created them uh, gramnivorous. They were all herbivores, whether they were dinosaurs, whether they were lions or tigers or what we now think of as carnivorous animals. They were at one time all uh, herbivores. That means that they had a different dental structure than they have today. That means that they had a different gastrointestinal system that they have today. And that when Adam sinned, his sin reverberated throughout the creation. We know that just from a few verses back in Romans chapter 8. It talks about how the, the, the world even now is suffering under, under the curse of sin, that even the creation is groaning under sin. We know also from an exegesis of uh, Romans, I mean, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, that when God addressed the serpent in terms of the curse, now we have to understand what the curse means. That means, as it is used in the Scripture, it is an outlining of the consequences of action. That's what a curse is. It is not some sort of uh, um, vindictive reaction of God. It is a statement of what the consequences are from their negative volition and from their disobedience. And the consequence for the serpent was that he would no longer walk upright, but he would go about on his scuts, and he would now be in the dust. So uh, the text of Genesis 3 states that he would be cursed more than the beasts of the field. That uh, comparative more than indicates that 
The serpent was cursed, but so were the beasts of the field. All of the all of animal creation underwent a change. That means that when God originally created uh, each species, each kind, and the, the you know biology has a category called species, and that is distinct from what the Bible calls kind. They're not the same thing. The biblical kind is broader than the biological species. But when God created the kinds, he created within each kind a certain amount of flexibility in their uh, genetic makeup in order to handle the chaos that would come from sin. So that a lion prior to the fall was different from a lion after the fall, but it was still a lion. Just as in the same way that a lion today is going to be different from a lion in the millennial kingdom. We know from Isaiah that when uh, Jesus Christ returns at the second coming and establishes the millennial kingdom, he will restore perfect environment to the earth. And the lion will lie down with the lamb, and a child will be able to put his hand into a cobra's den. Now, that's a different uh, order of creation in the millennial kingdom than we have today. That tells us that this aspect of the curse is going to be reversed and rolled back, and once again, carnivorous animals that we have today will still be on the planet, but they will undergo a biological change. Their dental structure is going to change back. Their gastrointestinal system is going to change back. So what this tells us is not only that, that, that sin has an effect on every dimension of life and therefore is much more evil and its consequences are much more extensive than, than we normally think of, but also that it gives us an illustration of how God can establish certain parameters and he can control history, but within that control, he also has room for the flexibility that comes from bad human decisions or good human decisions. So foreknowledge in Scripture is not some sort of automatic fatalism that excludes human volition and human free will, but it involves God's purpose for our life. Foreknowledge has to do with God, God, uh, God's omniscience related to, related to his plan and his purpose. And one example of this from the Old Testament is when uh, Hagar is pregnant with Ishmael, and she uh, is kicked out of the household, and she's, she reacts to Sarah's bitterness, and she runs away. God appeared to her and told her to go back. Notice God did not respond like modern psychiatrists would say and just sort of pat her on the back and say, well, I know how tough it's going to be living in that kind of environment, so uh, you just go on and, and live on your own where life is going to be easier. He told her to go back into one of the most difficult situations a person could find themselves in, a situation where they would not be honored or respected, a situation where they would be belittled. But nevertheless, God had a plan, and that plan does not always mean that we're going to be in the most comfortable of circumstances. So God has foreknowledge. Secondly, predestination. Now, predestination, again, is not a term that involves the uh, absence of free will. It has to do with destiny. The term predestined is a combination of a prefix pre, which means beforehand or before the events occur, and destin or destiny, which has to do with the ultimate goal or direction of God's plan. 
So predestined means that before time began, God determined a destiny for every single believer, and that destiny is his plan to conform us to the image of his, of his Son in reference to our character. And this is what sanctification is all about, and it's the spiritual life. We are to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is our destiny. Third, he called us. That has to do with the work of God the Holy Spirit in making the gospel clear to us at the moment of salvation. This is a operation of God the Father, and calling us is a uh, restrictive operation here. Notice, God. this is not the general calling of the uh, evangelist who perhaps stands in front of a crowd of believe, made up of believers and unbelievers uh, giving a gospel invitation. This has to do with a specific and a unique operation of God the Holy Spirit at the point of gospel hearing for only those who are saved. Notice what the text says. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And notice the, ult- the ending in verse 30. These he glorified. Notice the these. The same group he foreknew, he predestined. No more, no less. The same group that he predestined, he calls. He doesn't call everyone. He only calls those whom he foreknew and predestined. And though, then the, the fourth word is justified. He only calls those who are justified. He doesn't call anyone who is not justified or not saved. So calling has to do with the operation of God the Holy Spirit on the individual who will have positive volition at gospel hearing. These he calls, so the, the fourth op, or third operation he calls us. The fourth operation is he justified us, and that is that when Jesus Christ's righteousness is imputed to us at the instant of salvation, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant God declares us to be righteous. It's a judicial decision from the Supreme Court of Heaven. And then fifth, He will glorify us, and that has to do with our ultimate destiny in heaven, phase three, when we are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, when we are finally freed from the presence of sin, and we will spend eternity face to face with Him. And then the sixth operation of the Father toward us in relationship to positional truth is He disciplines us, and this is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 9, where we read, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. See, we are sons by virtue of our position in Christ. That makes us, we, at that point, we are adopted. The adoption as sons is part of positional truth and what happens when we're identified with Christ. So what comes with that is a guarantee that God is going to discipline you when you get out of line. And when you spend an extended amount of time in carnality, God will discipline you in order to teach you endurance in the Christian life. 
Hebrews 12.9 concludes, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So those are six operations of God the Father in relationship to positional truth. He foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified us, glorified, will glorify us, and he disciplines us. Now I have also six operations of God the Son in relationship to positional truth. First of all, we receive the righteousness of God the Son in positional truth. It is Christ's righteousness that we receive. There is something distinct about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God the Father has a perfect righteousness, but the righteousness of God the Father is not the righteousness that is imputed to us. Christ's righteousness, which is the result of the interplay of his deity and his humanity, is a righteousness which is the result of his being tested as a man. And it is that perfect righteousness, which is a righteousness related to his humanity, that is imputed to us. And it is on the basis of that imputation that we're saved, not for any good on our behalf. Now, this is important, and this is the touchstone of what was called the Protestant Reformation. At the cross, when we trust Christ as our Savior, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to the believer. Experientially, he is still a sinner, and minus R, but he now possesses the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when God, who is perfect righteousness and absolute justice, looks at the believer, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ and he declares the believer to be just before the bar of his, of his judgment. That is what justification means. Roman Catholics argue ever since the Council of Trent that this is just a legal fiction. That's their terminology. They try to make the claim that you have to have something more, something of your own. It's not just enough to have the righteousness of God, but there also has to be uh, good works on the part of the individual. And so their terminology is that the believer has to merit the merit of Christ. See, what that does is basically destroy the meaning of words. According to the Roman Catholic position, grace is something that Christ earned at the cross, is given freely, but the believer has to merit that grace. That makes grace no longer free. It destroys the meaning of grace. Grace means it's a free gift. You do nothing to earn it or deserve it. One time I was told, because of uh, some things I was doing, a Roman Catholic told me, gee, you're earning a lot of grace. I just shook my head over that. It shows that they don't understand the meaning of grace. They have been brainwashed through years and years of uh, of their teaching to think of grace in terms of something you earn. But that's not what grace means. Grace means a free gift. You do nothing to earn it or deserve it. The second thing that we get from God the Son in positional truth is an end to the old life and a beginning to a new life. This is in Romans 6, verses 4 and 5. Romans 6, 4 and 5 reads, 
Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. His new life, post-resurrection, is the basis for our new life and our spiritual life. Because we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, we have a new life, and the old life ends at the instant of salvation. The third thing we get from Jesus Christ in positional truth is that he is the head of the church. He is now our authority. He is now the one to whom we look, Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, where he is called the head of the body. He is our commander-in-chief. The fourth thing we get from Jesus Christ in positional truth is that he intercedes for us. He is continually praying for us, and that's part of his role as high priest. He is interceding for us every single day. He prays that the Father would keep us. The reason we can't lose our salvation is because Jesus Christ is praying for the believer every single day, interceding for the believer and for the Father to keep uh, the believer saved. And Jesus Christ's prayers are always answered. If he were to stop praying today, we would all lose our salvation. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, we cannot lose our salvation. He continuously intercedes for us. Fifth, the fifth thing that Christ provides for us in positional truth is eternal life. He gives us eternal life. It is not just an ending life, but it is a quality of life. Too often when we look at the concept in the Gospels of eternal life, we think simply of life without end. But the unbeliever has life without end, but it is a life that is in the lake of fire, a life of condemnation, an eternity in hell. But for the believer, there is a different quality to that non-ending life. It is a quality of life. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came not like a thief to steal and destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. Those are two distinct things. He came to give life. We get eternal life, unending life, a destiny in heaven at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. Secondly, he came to give abundant life. That is a richness of life, a fullness of life, a capacity for happiness and joy and the ability to to fulfill a human destiny that was lost when Adam sinned. Because of regeneration and because of all that we are given in positional truth, we have once again received the potential of being a true human being to fulfill the destiny that God originally intended for Adam. Now, it's going to be limited in this age because it's still an age where there is sin in the world, and so we're dealing with the curse of sin, and so we'll never be able to fulfill that destiny in the same way Adam potentially could have in the garden. But it is not just an unending life, it is a qualitative life. The sixth thing is that Christ is going to evaluate us. As part of positional truth, Christ is our judge. He is the one who will evaluate us at the judgment seat of Christ, covered in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. So God the Father is involved in positional truth. God the Son is involved in positional truth. And God the Holy Spirit is involved in positional truth. There are at least six things. I'm only going to cover six. There are more things which God the Holy Spirit provides for us as 
part of our uh, package of positional truth. These are absolutes that cannot be lost. He also provides the filling of the Holy Spirit, but that is lost once we sin, and it's recovered through 1 John 1, 9. So I'm just dealing with irreversible aspects of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. There are six. Regeneration. We are born again. We are given a human spirit at the instant of salvation, Titus 3, 5. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Second, not only does God the Son intercede for us in prayer, but God the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer, Romans 8, 26, and 27. Paul writes, and in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For, explanation, we do not know how to pray as we should. So often we think we ought to pray for this or for that. We don't know exactly how to pray. Sometimes we think we do, and so we tell God what He ought to do. But fortunately, we have the Holy Spirit who functions as a divine translator who uh, shapes up our prayers. This doesn't mean that you just mutter some sort of uh, generalization and hope that the Holy Spirit adds some specificity to it. We are to be involved in prayer, but God the Holy Spirit is enabling our prayer. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, notice, with groanings too deep for words. Now, the charismatics come along and say, well, that's what they're really doing when they're speaking in tongues is that this is uh, those uh, groanings, and uh, this is the Holy Spirit language. But notice these is groanings that are too deep for words. In other words, it's, you can't articulate it at all. So the Holy Spirit knows the, the deepest desires in our mind, in our heart, and he makes that clear in his intercession for us. So when you are going through certain trials and difficulties in life, that you can be, be sure that the day before, the day before that, God the Holy Spirit recognized that you needed certain things in your life that were necessary for our certain tests, that were necessary for your spiritual advance. And so he was praying that God the Father would bring those uh, into your those situations into your experience to give you an opportunity to apply doctrine. Verse 27 reads, And he searches the he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit is continually interceding for us. Third, there is the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, which we'll cover in detail a little later on. 1 Corinthians 12:13. it is by means of one Spirit that we were all baptized, that is, identified into one body, that is, the body of Christ. Fourth, we are sealed by means of the Holy Spirit. This is God's mark of ownership that is placed on us. In the Roman world, a seal would be placed on a document, and that would indicate ownership. In the same way, the sealing of the Spirit indicates that we are owned by God, and therefore we cannot lose our salvation. I often liken or compare the sealing of the Holy Spirit to branding cattle. Out in uh, Texas, they developed the concept of branding cattle when they had open ranges back in the 19th century, and there were no barbed wire fences that we call bob wire. And uh, there were no barbed wire fences out there. 
And so cattle just mingled. They'd have to go out during roundup time and separate the herds. And so they would identify uh, cattle by means of a brand. But sometimes rustlers would come along, and they had various uh, ways of trying to change brands. And one was that they would take a cinch ring off the saddle, which is a round ring, and they would heat that in the fire. And then they would use that to uh, change the brand. Now, when you look at that brand from the outside, it would look uh, different from what it was intended to be. And the only way you could tell if a brand had been changed was to kill the animal and to skin it out. And after you skinned it out and you looked on the inside, you would see that it was changed. And that's the way it is for some believers. After they're saved, they go in through a life of extended carnality. And you look at their life and they don't look like a Christian. They don't act like a Christian. And you say, how in the world can that person be saved? And then after they die, uh, they're skinned out, so to speak. Then we discover that they are indeed a child of God. And only God knows, and it's not clear to us at all. So that's what the sealing of the Spirit is. It guarantees our salvation. Ephesians 1.13, In Him, that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him, that is positional truth, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His own glory. Then for our fifth, we receive spiritual gifts. These spiritual gifts are given to us at the instant of salvation. You don't get them later on through some crisis experience, through some second act of grace. And spiritual gifts are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. There are two categories of spiritual gifts. There are temporary gifts or miraculous gifts, such as the gift of apostle. Uh, you know that's temporary because one of the requirements of an apostle was that they had seen the resurrected Christ. Since there's no one alive today who ever saw the resurrected Christ, we know that there are no longer any apostles. Uh, that was a temporary gift. Healing was a temporary gift. Speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, these were all uh, in prophecy. These were all temporary gifts that were given during the uh, interim period of the, aposto- or the apostolic period in the early church when the New Testament canon was not, had not been written down, it was not complete, and so God used these revelatory gifts to communicate to the church. But once the canon was complete, it was no longer necessary to have these uh, revelatory gifts. And then finally, we have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? Temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? God the Holy Spirit has taken a permanent residence in us, and as part of the function of His indwelling, He is operating to sanctify us. When that is operational, we call that the filling of the Spirit, and He fills us by means of His Word. That is all point number 9. And point number 10 deals with what we have in Christ. Because we are in union with Christ, we share. And I'm going to give you uh, nine points of what we share with Christ. 
Point number ten is because we are in union with Christ, we share His eternal life. First John five eleven and twelve. And the record is this: that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. We share His eternal life. Second, we share His perfect righteousness. Second Corinthians five twenty one. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We share His election. Ephesians 1.4, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Fourth, we share His destiny. Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Fifth, we share His sonship. 2 Timothy 2.1, you therefore, my son, be, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We share his sonship. Sixth, we share his heirship. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and our children heirs also, heirs of God, and that should be a comma, heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ. That comes only if we advance spiritually. That's the second part of the verse following the conditional clause. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Point number seven, we share his sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God which is a Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We, sh- we have sanctification, positional sanctification by our identification with him. Eighth, we have a royal priesthood, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. We share his royal priesthood. By this, we all have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So we share in his priesthood, Hebrews 10 through 14, specifically verse 11. And then ninth, we share in his royalty, 2 Peter 1.11, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. That probably is, um, that looks like a false reference there. It should be First Peter, I'm guessing. Point number 10. The last point in the doctrine of positional truth, or this is point number 11, rather. What positional truth is not? Don't be confused. Positional truth is not an experience. It's not an emotion. It's not evidence through ecstatics. This is the problem that we have in the charismatic movement. Secondly, positional truth is not progressive. It is absolute. We get it all at the instant of salvation, and it cannot be improved on in time or eternity. We have it all at the instant of salvation. Third, it's not related to human merit or ability. It is ours by grace. It is all given to us by grace, and it doesn't matter what you do or what you haven't done. Fourth, it cannot be changed by God, man, or angels. It is eternal in nature. It never changes. 
Fifth, it is not obtained gradually as you grow in grace. It is absolute at the instant of salvation. And sixth, we understand it only because we know it from the Word of God. It's not known from experience. It's known through God's revelation of what He has done for us at the instant of salvation. Now, that's the doctrine of positional truth. And I want to cover next, very briefly in the time we have left, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Having covered the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we will then be prepared to go forward. This is foundational to understanding what Paul says and why he says it in 1 Corinthians. You keep that in mind. This isn't just some academic recitation of some theological point, but that Paul is dealing with a congregation that is loaded with more problems than um, almost any other given church. And what Paul is showing us is when he argues, when he confronts them with a problem, every single problem he goes back to their position in Christ, their position in Christ. So this is important for us to understand this because the same solution is ours, but we have to understand these principles. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, point number one, the baptism of the Holy Spirit did not occur in the Old Testament. It is not an Old Testament doctrine. It is something that began in the New Testament. Point number two, the concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was first prophesied by John the Baptist before Jesus Christ appeared on the scene, not before his incarnation, but before his public ministry. John the Baptist is the first to talk about this, and then Jesus Christ also predicts it as being in the future in Acts 1.5. So it is prophesied by John the Baptist, and Jesus Christ speaks of it as still future in Acts 1.5. Point number three. In Matthew and the other Gospels, the subject of the active voice verb is Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? Look at the verse. Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist says, As for me, I baptize you with water. The, the verb is baptize. The subject is I, which refers to John the Baptist. And the, the means by which he baptizes is with water. This is expressed in the Greek with the preposition in, translated with here. But it is the, uh, the preposition in plus the dative of hudor for water. As for me, I baptize you with water. Now, there's a comparison. He says, but he, that is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you, future tense of the verb. The verb is baptized. The subject, the performer of the action is he, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this verse, the Lord Jesus Christ performs the action of the verb. He will baptize you, and then the Holy Spirit, the means or the instrument that is used to effect the baptism is expressed with an N clause plus the dative of pneumity. Now, notice the parallel we have here. John baptizes with water. Jesus will baptize with the Spirit. And more accurately, it should be translated by means of water and by means of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus Christ, in all the prophetic passages in the Gospels and in Acts 1-5, Jesus Christ is the subject of the verb. Now, remember that. The mechanics of baptism, point number four, are described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 
Notice what Paul says. He says, for by one spirit. Guess what that says in the Greek? It's the same phrase we have over in Matthew 3. It is the Greek preposition in plus the dative of pneuma. So he is, but the translator translated it by one spirit. That led uh, people who did not know Greek to think that there were two different baptisms. One by the spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 and one with the spirit in Matthew chapter 3. But in, a, in actuality, in the Greek, it's the same verbiage. It's the same terminology. And notice that in clause in Acts did not tell us who performed the baptism. It explained the instrument that was used to affect the baptism. Now, we have the same thing in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen that the Spirit is the instrument of baptism, but the subject isn't given. Unfortunately, or well, not really unfortunately, but what confuses people is that the main verb here baptizo we were all baptized is a passive tense now when you bring that over into english for example if you say john hit the ball that's an active voice verb john performs the action he hits the ball now if you change that verb to a passive voice you would say the ball was hit by john so the subject in that first sentence, John, is now expressed by a by-clause in order to express the passiveness of the verb. But John is still the subject of that verb. Now, the, the trouble is that the Greek by one spirit is not expressing the subject of the verb here. If you just had this verse, you would be led to think that, and a lot of people do. And so for that reason... Uh, Many people have defined, and you were probably taught this in the past until I came along, uh, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what, that the Spirit did the baptizing. But that, if the Spirit does the baptizing in 1 Corinthians 12, and Jesus does the baptizing in Matthew 3, then you're left with two baptisms. Now, if, that, if you've got two different people performing the baptism, in one place it's Jesus, in another place it's the Holy Spirit, then you end up with a charismatic problem. You've got two baptisms. But the problem is you have to understand the Greek. And the Greek end clause here is not expressing the subject of the verb. Greek would express the subject in a different way. It would still express the subject in a nominative uh, case. The end clause by one spirit is still expressing the instrument of the baptism. And so we have to say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is when God the Son uses the Holy Spirit to bring about the identification of the believer with his own death, burial, and resurrection. So that is why I make an emphasis out of always expressing this as the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Fifth point is that unification, true unity among believers, is achieved positionally. Experientially, it's not always true because they're carnal believers and they're those who've gotten into false doctrine. There needs to be a separation. But the basic unity is achieved through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and this is found in Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5, where we read, There is one body, that is, the body of Christ, the church, and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's not water baptism there. That is the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. 
Now the implications of this, point number six, the implications of this and the consequences of this are found in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. For all of you who were baptized, that is, baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And that is not saying that there are no longer men and women, or that there are no longer slaves and free men. It is not a statement of uh, experiential reality. It is a statement of uh, the unique position the believer in the church age has before God. In the Old Testament, uh, worship was affected by whether or not you were a Jew or a Greek. Jews had privileges Gentiles did not have. If you were a slave, you could not go into the temple. Only a free man could. If you were a woman in the Old Testament, you did not have access into the inner part of the temple. And what this is saying is because of our position in Christ, every believer, regardless of his uh, ethnicity, Jew or Greek, regardless of his economic status, slave or free, regardless of his sex, male or female, all have equal access to Jesus Christ, all have equal opportunity in the spiritual life, and there is no distinction as far as the spiritual life is concerned. Point number seven, the baptism of the Holy Spirit provides a retroactive identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's Romans 6, verses 4 and 5. The baptism of the Holy Spirit provides retroactive identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's the basis for positional truth. And point number eight, our last point, is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit began the church age. For example, in Matthew 16:18, Jesus says to Peter, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build future tents. I will build my church. He wasn't building it yet. It wasn't in existence during the Incarnation. The church is yet future during the life of Christ. Nevertheless, when we come to passages like Acts 1.5, we see that it's about to begin. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized. Still future in Acts 1.5. But then when we come to Acts 11.15, um, Paul says, and, or Peter says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. That's a reference back to Acts chapter 2. And then this is confirmed again in Acts 11.17. Uh, if God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That tells us that something happens between Acts 1 and Acts 11 that, that introduces the baptism of the Holy Spirit and begins the church, and that's the events in Acts chapter 2. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the unique mark of the church age. That's what began the church age, and it identifies us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is... Uh, that brings about positional truth and positional identification, which is the basis for the spiritual life. And that's the basis for solving any and every problem we face in life. It doesn't matter what you come up with. It doesn't matter uh, what the situation might be, no matter how extreme. The ground for solving that problem in your life is understanding what you have in Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to once again realize all that we have in Christ. It's due to grace just as our salvation is due to grace. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that this would be the, their opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you have to do right where you sit is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is not a matter of works. It's not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of ritual. It is simply a matter of accepting what Jesus Christ has already done for you on the cross. There he died as a substitute for your sins. Every sin you will ever commit, past, present, or future, was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, all you have to do is relax. Relax and trust in the work of someone else to bring about your salvation. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today and encourage us that that every problem, every difficulty, every heartache in life finds its solution in your grace provision for us, which we received at the instant of salvation. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.